This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag, which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash greenbiz. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, James Murray on the UK's view of COP26, Can Accountants Save the Earth? A new book helps companies go climate positive and how farmers and seaweed can help tackle ocean pollution. Kelp is on the way, this week on 350. It's October 15th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from the Garden State, the original Jersey girl herself is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Oh, hello, Joel. How are you? Oh, yeah, well, you know, I, hello. I'm, uh, you know, um, o- overworked, underplayed, but, you know, generally good. Underplayed, oh. <laughs> I'm too tired for you today. I'm going to, I'm just going to, how about I just, you can talk and I'll laugh. Uh, I I, I, generally, I wouldn't mind that. I think the audience may, uh, may tune us out pretty quickly. So let's, uh, let's, let's get into it. I know we're we're working on Verge, getting ready for COP. Uh, There's just, everybody wants to write for us this week, it seems, and and is delivering a a story, which is great. Thank you. Thank you all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, and so it goes. But uh, look, enough about us. Let's let's just get right into the weekend review. Well, let's let's start with farmers and seaweed. As I said, kelp is on the way. Um, uh, Heather, why don't you lead us into this? Uh, you you picked this story. Uh, what would you like about it? Yeah. So I picked this story uh, for two reasons. But, but first of all, because. Our contributor, CJ Klaus, she's uh, our senior writer. Uh, she's just a terrific observer of, of many, many different things, including all the great work she does about green finance issues. But she's got a particular interest in circular economy issues and and had an opportunity while she was in Europe this year to meet with some seaweed startups. And, um, you know, when she pitched this story originally, I figured, OK, yeah, we, we know seaweed's a great thing to eat. We know people are farming it so that they can provide better protein, you know, different types of protein from the ocean, but also at the same time, suck up carbon, blah, blah, blah. But this piece is is about that. It mentions that, but it's really more focused on the the, uh, the opportunity to use seaweed as part of a land-based uh, cultivation method. So the idea that uh, it can help with uh, cutting out the, the nitrogen uh, and the excess nutrients that flow from coastal waters into the ocean and really whack out if you will, the ocean um, with algae blooms. So as she and start off on farms, yeah, by the exactly. way, just show up in the water. Yeah. They, they all start off as exactly. runoff. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 fertilizer basically runs off into the streams and so forth. And we we've read 
so many things about the, the just amazing things happening and not amazing in a good way, but in the, um, for example, the Gulf dead zone, um, what is it? 6,600 square miles, um, which is bigger than the state of Hawaii, you know, where, where things are happening and, and it's just the excess nutrients, you know, you, you don't think nutrients are too much, too much of a good thing. It is too much of a good thing, but Anyway, the, the piece focuses on the opportunity to use seaweed as a different cultivation method and help cut down on the uh, amount of nitrogen uh, in, in the ocean. And as she writes, it's using algae to help fight <laughs> algae blooms, essentially. Um, so I appreciated that that nuance of it just because it was it's different, a different way of looking at this topic. I, I'm fascinated by seaweed as a as a potential for addressing climate change. And this is another dimension of that. What about you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, what, what I loved about this piece is the way CJ just really explained it well. I mean, from the point of understanding the dead zones and all of that, not new information, but really putting it in the context uh, that we here in, the, in Green Biz and our readers, I think, will want to understand. But also the role, uh, I mean, just the different kinds, there's 10,000 kinds of seaweed. They're classified into, you know, by color, red, uh, mm -hmm. brown, and uh, what's the other one? Red, uh, green, brown, <laughs> and green, mm -hmm. I guess, uh, and red, brown, and green, and um, and, and most seaweed production involves uh, cultivating different types of red algae, which grows in warmer waters. Uh, but there's this this whole other thing, as you say, that's uh, using seaweed as a as a, a cleanup, a, a remediation, in effect of the of the runoff that's going into oceans and causing these dead zones. And uh, and so you know how do uh, you know, how can farmers, there's a business here. Uh, there's a Dutch startup called the Seaweed Company, of course, um, and that's that's looking to, uh, you know, do this and be circular in the process. Uh, just uh, they have a variety of projects and, and, and products, but they're furthest along with a, a, a brand of biostimulants and seaweed-based animal feed. Uh, but they're also showing that these... Uh, these seaweeds have value on land, but also value in sea. So I, I guess it's one of those things that's been, um, you know, a problem we don't talk a lot about, a solution we didn't know much about, and a business opportunity that uh, is emerging in a, in a potentially significant way. Yeah. And there is an equity twist, too, that I'll just mention before we move on. But uh, there's one of the other startups, uh, one born at MIT, SOS Carbon, uh, has been, you know, working with hotels in, in the Dominican Republic resorts, like resort areas where they're, they're basically hoping to help fishers, fisher people, um, fishermen, fisherwomen have a different source of income. So there is that, that angle, that twist on it as well. It could help these, these uh, regions that are being uh, challenged by the changes in the ocean, the, the most of all. So I love that too. Yeah, uh, I think they're just called fishers now. <laughs> fishers, the, fisher the, the people. Gender, no, I think it is. Yeah. Uh, that's the gender, gender okay. neutral. Thank you play. for that. Um, well, speaking of sea references, uh, there's a, a company that uh, Ben Saltoff, our contributor, wrote about called Remora. Remora is a truck company. has nothing to do with sea, but the name has a... Uh, uh, marine reference, uh, you, as you explained to me before we started uh, uh, 
rolling rolling tape this uh, this day. Uh, Remora is a uh, species or a type of fish, and you have eight types of fish that attach themselves to to sharks, I guess, and and, and also to things. you sometimes, Heather, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> to me. <laughs> they're they're creepy. Not but, to make uh, any implications about you I'm being a shark. a shark, but no, you <laughs> yeah. you better explain why I said that. <laughs> Why? Why do they do that? Well, they 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 just like the uh, the black of of, uh, of wetsuits. So yeah, I don't uh, know. I and I okay. also in, in, and I do wear wetsuits when I dive. So yes, when I've been okay. diving and if they get interested, they're a little they're a little intimidating. But um, huh. but yeah the, yeah, the, it is actually it's a really um, it's a wonderful reference. It's a great name for this company because this this company basically sucks bad things out of trucks. <laughs> To, to to really simplify it, um, I, I you were you, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but would you like me to go on, or would you like to go on? Uh, no, uh, go go ahead. I have some comments, but but yeah. go for it. So uh, yeah, it's this is a um, an interesting point source ca carbon capture solution, specifically for trucks. The idea being to c capture the carbon dioxide from the tailpipe, um, and uh, it's a it's a startup. It's it's Part of the, some of the players are from Michigan. I mean, they're based in Michigan, so they have they have uh, I mean, uh, some really young, eager uh, founding founding members, and they have some really interesting uh, funders, including Lower Carbon Capital and um, Y Combinator. Some some pretty interesting funding um, funding opportunities. Five point five million seed round, and really impressive partners already. Uh, Rider. Cargill have are working with this company. It's uh, it's it's just one of these startups that's kind of come out of nowhere and has really captured the attention of some large players. Yeah, what, what I liked about it, and this is a great quote from um, Paul Gross, uh, Remora's co-founder and CEO. And it really explains it in a nutshell. He said, it seemed crazy to me that we have all these very rich sources of carbon dioxide coming out of buildings and vehicles, and we're going to wait instead for that carbon dioxide to scatter in the atmosphere, then try to collect it again. So instead, he put uh, basically a collection device at the at, at the tailpipe of these of these big rig trucks and, and understanding how to basically take existing trucks, retrofit them with these uh, basically carbon capture technologies. And uh, I don't know, you know, what percentage, I'm sorry, I don't, if it's in the story, I, I missed it, what percentage of emissions um, can be reduced, but I'm, I'm sure it's significant, again, because otherwise you wait till it goes in the atmosphere, disperses, it's much more dilute, harder to capture. Um, this just makes pure sense. Uh, and they went, they use a uh, basically, common material zeolite is a porous mineral-like substance that uh, that is already used to uh, remove CO2 uh, emissions uh, in spaceships and submarines, and so uh, they're they're going not with exotic uh, technologies, uh, but it is a sounds like a great innovation that could have a huge impact. Definitely one to watch. Definitely. And uh, I'd like to move us to our final. I'm counting on you, huh. Joel, to help us with our final story, which is your column from this week. Can accountants save the earth? Don't count on it. Um, love this piece because of all the attention we've been giving to carbon accounting and, and, and trying to translate the risks and opportunities of environmental, social, and governance issues into numbers, dollars and cents or euros or pounds or whatever, yen, whatever uh, whatever currency you're using. 
Um, and I, I appreciated this because I mean, for one thing, I, self-interest here, I am pitched on so many accounting, quote, accounting tools right now, software tools uh, for car, you know, carbon, carbon, you know, ha, what are our emissions and what, what is the impact of our scope three and so forth. So there's just a, a lot of noise in this space. And uh, I love how you sort of, it's great. I think you and I are both a fan of this sort of thinking, but uh, as you point out, there's a lot of uh, unknown questions that, that maybe we need to be asking more loudly. So what, what got you thinking about this piece? Well, I was pointed to an article in the recent uh, edition of the Stanford Social Innovation Review. It's called Heroic Accounting. And it, it takes a, a by uh, Andrew King, who's a professor at Boston University's uh, Questrom School of Business, and Kenneth Pucker, who is a senior lecturer at the Fletcher School at Tufts University and former chief operating officer at Timberland. And they take on impact accounting, which is you know basically, how do you attempt to put a monetary value on a broad range of things, both tangible and intangible, uh, and with the goal of saying, okay, now that we know what the, the, the dollar value of, the, of these are, we can look at where the biggest impacts are and uh, presumably to, to reduce them. And they make a case that, yeah, this is not only uh, difficult, uh, but it's perilous, is their word, uh, that it actually could cause more problems than, it, than it's worth. Because, I mean, how do you, so many of these intangibles require a lot of subjectivity. Um, you know, how do you uh, think about what's a necessity versus what's a luxury good? Uh, they talk about air travel being an, a luxury good. And, you know, and, and it, I guess at some level it is. But people travel for all sorts of reasons. You may have people going to a family funeral or, to, you know, or just, you know, if you haven't seen seen your relatives in two years because of COVID, you know, that's maybe it's a luxury, I guess, that you get to fly instead of drive. But, you know, going to a job interview, going to uh, to to do some other kind of business um, or, you know, is a vacation. Uh, yeah, it's a luxury, but we all need those. And, you know, how do you think about that, the value of those? And so how do you price it uh, or prioritize it? Um, and, and you end up getting into all kinds of, as I said, subjective and, and sort of capricious and arbitrary kinds of things. And so, you know, not to mention the fact that as they write, creating valuations for every impact for every company is going to require the label, the labor of many people to measure, validate, and value company impacts. It, it, it seems probable that tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of analysts would be needed. And then, of course, you know, how are they going to be selected and governed if, if these are private interests? Who gives them the right to make value judgments about these things from trans fats to gun ownership to, to air travel, as I said? And, you know, then do we need to scale up government dramatically? Anyway, on and on. Uh, as they said, they, they, they think it's going to create more problems than it solves. You know, and, you know, I... I, I not sure. I completely agree. I think it's, you know, it's mostly what's important here is the is the healthy discussion that articles like this uh, should be prompting. And, you know, I've already seen some pushback saying, you know, the gap between having to account for everything and where we are now is is vast. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, we, we certainly can move a little bit in each direction without necessarily, you know, breaking the system. Although some would say the system is broken already and needs to be fixed. But, uh, you know, again, so this is maybe taking an extreme view. But it's the opposite end of the extreme view is that if, you know, if only we can measure it, we can manage it. That means everything can be turned into to to money and therefore we'll have impacts. And, and by the way, one more thing, Heather, you know, Ken Pucker, I talked with him about this and he, he said, you know, 
some of these noble pursuits don't actually deliver. You know, back uh, almost 20 years ago, Congress passed the law now known as Sarbanes-Oxley, which mandated that companies have to report on the ratio between the pay of executives and average workers, the pay gap. And of course, that gap, even though it's being disclosed, has, has gotten better, it's gotten worse. The same with you know the, the law that requires in the U.S. Uh, certain chain restaurants to disclose their calorie and nutrition information. That hasn't exactly curbed obesity. So... A healthy discussion, you know, uh, can can accountants save the earth? Uh, you know, some people say yes, and some other people say it just doesn't add up. COP26 is sneaking up on us just a couple weeks off in Glasgow, Scotland. And it's a good time to uh, check in with James Murray, Editor-in-Chief of Business Green, to catch up on the latest. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. Good to see you. So uh, it seems like there's lots going on with this week already, uh, some good cop and bad cop developments. Um, you're tracking this, I think, closer than we are. You're over on the right side of the pond. Uh, tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, it's all starting to ramp up less than a month ago until everyone gathers in Glasgow uh, for, for the big event. Um, and yeah, we're seeing developments almost at a daily basis at the moment. Um, so Alok Sharma, uh, the COP26 president designate, uh, former cabinet minister in the UK, and is is set to be the main man at the president at the um, at the event. Um, he travelled to Paris uh, today uh, to give a sort of major speech um, at, at a kind of UN event, um, and essentially was kind of playing the bad cop role a little bit. He was he was saying to world leaders, a please you you should come to Glasgow, and b come with serious intent, come with new commitments uh, both on funding and your national climate plans. Um, and and deliver. The, you know, the world is watching. I think he said it, it, it's not a talking shop. It can't be a talking shop. Um, we need to see action. And he sort of spelled out the UK's priorities uh, for the event. Um, he gave some more details on um, or, or some more reassurances to poorer nations uh, that he intends to make it a very inclusive event, uh, despite the concerns about uh, quarantining and social distancing and the like that have have, have been a really sort of hot topic in the coming months. He, he insists he will listen to all nations and try to deliver uh, a, a breakthrough at this at this summit. So that's the sort of bad cop um, side of this. Was there a good cop piece? Yeah. So interestingly, and I, you, you get the you get the sense that it's probably coordinated, given how closely diplomats work together. But um, John Kerry, the U.S. Uh, climate envoy, he gave a, an interview with the Guardian. Um, in which he was um, sort of reassuringly upbeat. He, he was basically saying that he thinks um, that there'll be a number of, and I quote, surprising announcements at COP26, hmm. um, that uh, he said that world leaders were sharpening their pencils, um, obviously a term for improving their offers. Um, and, and you know, he, he was sort of broadly optimistic that we're going to see a significant sort of critical mass of countries stepping up with more ambitious plans, more ambitious funding. Um, all of this is going to go hand in hand with the many sort of industrial and business group commitments that we're going to see. And while no one at this stage is sort of saying we're going to get a sort of package that definitely puts us on track for 1.5 degrees of warming, um, there does seem to be growing optimism from people close to the talks. Um, and, and influential figures like the US, like the EU, like the UK, um, that we can deliver on that goal of kind of what they're calling keeping 1.5 alive, keep keeping 1.5 degrees within reach um, so that in five years' time, when you come forward with another package of hopefully improved 
commitments, you, you really are starting to move towards that decarbonisation trajectory. So um, there's, yeah, there's more optimism around the talks than there was um, a, a month ago. Well, that's encouraging. And I'm glad, by the way, people are still using pencils and have to sharpen them. That seems like a <laughs> retro, but also refreshing. Um, I have to ask you about the business response. Uh, that's obviously what both Business Green and Green Biz uh, cover from uh, our respective perches. Um, are you seeing any ramp up there? Is there this increased ambition that everyone is hoping for starting to manifest? I think so. I mean, we just hosted our Net Zero Festival um, and we was just sort of staggered again by the sheer number of big corporates that are now making these Net Zero commitments um, that are, you know, ramping up their, their sort of practical real world decarbonisation efforts. Um, obviously, big questions always about, you know, whether those targets are being translated into real world action. But I think one of the interesting things we'll see at COP26 is the formation of more of these industry groups that are looking to share best practices spread some of the risk, lobby politicians and policymakers more fervently to get the, the policy frameworks that we need to tackle these big crunchy issues. You know, you know, how do we switch to 100% electric fleets? How do we scale the market for sustainable aviation fuel? How do we tackle emissions from cement, concrete, steel, these, these big heavy industries? And, you know, you're seeing it's been a, there has been a genuine step change since Paris on on that front with these big industrial groups and big investors um, coming forward with plans in these areas. I mean, I think it was just today we saw um, a, a group of global cement and concrete firms uh, coming forward with new emissions targets for 2030. So they've already got a net zero target for 2050. Now they've got some really quite ambitious decarbonisation targets for 2030 as well, which should mobilise investment in the next wave of cement and concrete infrastructure. So there's, again, lots to worry about, but there's also signs of some genuinely quite serious momentum that will all coalesce around COP26 in Glasgow. Wow, you sound uh, rather chipper for a journalist uh, who's been covering this for a long time. You know, these consortia, uh, these partnerships, these groups coming together, it seems to be almost one and a new one every day. Uh, and I'm wondering, is this uh, really enabling companies to uh, up their game, to increase their uh, effectiveness and all of this, or is it kind of a fig leaf? I'm, I'm concerned that some of this may just be their strength in numbers and together we don't have to do as much as if we were all singled out. Um, I think that's an absolutely valid concern. And, and you can argue whether that's driven by cynicism, which is probably true in some companies, or it's simply a fact that this is really, really difficult stuff. You know, it's high cost. There's lots of policy barriers. There's lots of technology barriers. Um, there's also one of the significant things that came up at our festival is the skills barriers. You know, there's just not sufficient number of people with the skill set and the understanding, whether it's at a business managerial level or at the technical skills level, to drive forward progress in some of these areas. Um, you, you've also, you know, you've still got that concern about first mover disadvantage that, that you're the one who's going to be funding while the, the, the free riders come along behind you. Um, you know, that's something that could yet derail COP both on a business level and on a political level, um, because there isn't still the universal agreement and support that we need to see to really uh, drive things forward at the pace that's required. Um, and, and yeah, there is, there's definitely still a big gap between the good stated intentions and, and the actual action. And and arguably there are too many different groups and there is a bit of confusion over um, how we actually scale these things as, as quickly as, as possible. It, it, it is confusing. I mean, I suppose the, 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 the sort of the optimist argument to that was it was ever going to be thus, you know, we're dealing with 
a really rapid industrial transformation that will be different in every region, different in every company, um, different in every nation and jurisdiction in the world. Um, and it was always going to be messy. Um, and 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 that and that's just the, the inherent nature of it. So before I let you go, uh, you and your colleagues at Business Green are going to be covering more of the day-to-day things than certainly than Heather and I will be doing on the ground in, in Glasgow. We're, we'll be, as we typically do, a little bit more the atmospherics and, and some maybe side pieces that aren't necessarily about what the nations are doing. But as you think about this, I know this is really a tough question, but what's the headline you're hoping to write when this is all over? Oh, that is a tough question. Um, the, I mean, Alok Sharma sort of set out the UK's goals today, and he was pretty clear. There's, there's sort of, there's sort of three or four of them. One is the technical side of it, is getting a kind of technical text, textual agreement that finalises the last bits of the Paris Agreement and kind of sets in place an agreed approach for the next five years for the next reporting phase of this thing. So you kind of got that t- diplomatic challenge there. Um, the other was what Boris Johnson in his sort of um, inimitable style has called um, cash, coal, cars and trees. Um, Ooh, and, almost and got getting, the alliteration uh, in there, but just yeah, he, bailed yeah, out he, of the he trees. Just, just tripped yeah. out. But, 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 but that's, you know, that's about big multinational um, corporate public-private commitments on those four areas, ending coal, ending internal combustion engine cars uh, within 15 years, you know, really big shifts, um, massive expansion of nature-based solutions and delivering on the cash for the developing world. So you kind of want, you, if, if they miss on any one of those, I think they could legitimately say to have, have failed against against their goals. Um, so, so you kind of got that side of it. And then the other one is, of course, is, of course, the net zero piece is, is for nations to come forward with their nationally determined contributions uh, then with their national climate plans that say we're going to get to net zero emissions within a generation, whether that's sort of 2040, 2050, or, or maybe for some developing nations, 2060, but a clear plan that says this is the direction of travel that we're, we're, we're going to take. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that the headline that you'd like to write for us, and I think for many businesses, is almost a little bit sort of Paris Agreement Redux. I, I kind of remember writing on the, on that that you know, the world had signaled the end of the fossil fuel age and sent a clear signals to markets and investors that we are going to fully decarbonize within 30 years, within a generation. Um, and the last five years has kind of seen that message become embedded. It's gone from something that was kind of hidden slightly in the text of the Paris Agreement to the defining economic strategy of the US, of China, of the EU, of the world's three biggest markets, and of, of thousands of corporations around the world. So I, th- I think the sort of the signal you want from Glasgow is basically, we weren't joking, we were serious. When we when we said in Paris, we were going to do this, we're still going to do this, we're going faster than ever before, we're not there yet. But there is no alternative. This is the direction of travel. This is what savvy investors and companies are doing. Um, and there's huge risks to clinging to the fossil fuel based model. Um, that that's the signal. And that's the sort of vision yeah. you'd like to see. Great. Well, I'll look forward to that uh, uh, COP26. Uh, this time we're serious. Uh, headline. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, well, lots to, to be uh, looking at and coming up in the next few weeks and over the next month at actual at the COP event in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, I'll look forward to seeing you there. Heather and I will be both be there. And James Murray is Editor-in-Chief of Business Green. It's always a pleasure, James. Thanks. Thanks, Joe. We'll see you in Glasgow. Thank you.
As we just talked about with COP26 coming up in just a few weeks, there's a renewed focus on corporate climate goals and especially going net zero. And as we've discussed in previous episodes, that's no small task and most companies need considerable help to get there, which is why I was pleased to see a new book from an old friend. Climate Positive Business, How You and Your Company Hit Bold Climate Goals and Go Net Zero by David Jaber, founder and CEO of Climate Positive Consulting. He joins me now. Hey, David. Hello, Joel. So this book seems to get into the weeds on what companies need to do to reduce or eliminate their greenhouse gas emissions. Who is the book intended for? The core audience for this book are sustainability directors. Part of the art of the book was writing it for multiple levels. So it's it provides, I think, guidance and a good refresher to bring together information all in one place. But there's also sort of basic information to help bring others along that may not be as well versed as sustainability directors are on issues around kind of climate and kind of the issues that businesses in particular have to focus when when dealing with climate issues. So the the whole net zero field, just to zoom in on that, uh, really is a two-edged sword. On the one hand, so many companies are leaning into it, making commitments, pledges. Uh, on the other hand, it, it's not necessarily going as I think many of us had hoped. Uh, Accenture last week published a new report that tracks how Europe's largest companies are progressing towards net zero. They tend to be uh, ahead of the companies here in North America. And it found that uh, that uh, one-third have pledged to reach net zero. And of those, of that one-third, just 5%, are on track to meet their net zero target if they, can, if they continue with the pace of emissions uh, that, that they've had uh, over the past decade. So how do you how do we get past this? How do we uh, get more companies uh, getting further faster? And, and let's talk about your book again. How does that help? One concern with net zero is the fact that the definition in some cases can be kind of nebulous. And this won't be news to those who are sophisticated about business climate action. But it's worth repeating many times that net zero goals should be coupled with science-based targets. And I think this gets into, um, I'm guessing, I didn't see the Accenture report. I'm guessing it's saying that they're not making emissions reductions, probably in line with science-based targets. With science-based targets, it emphasizes real reductions in your established footprint. It's not enough, not just enough to offset your emissions, for example. And it also incentivizes early action. I think it, science-based targets require you to hit milestones within the first five to 10 years. And one critique of net zero is that the time horizon tends to be 2040 or 2050. So in theory, companies could wait. So I'm glad uh, there's organizations like Accenture actually looking at how people are on track. And I think going with science-based targets, I think, um, puts that commitment in place and helps get companies on a timeline where they're looking at the early action and should get on a better trajectory for hitting net zero. So what would you advise companies who are, let's t let's start with the, the ones that, the, the two-thirds of the companies, at least in the Accenture report, that haven't yet made a net zero commitment. Um, what would you advise them to to be doing maybe differently than most companies to get it right from the start? Usually, if there's companies that kind of don't know where they stand at the moment, the first step in that is to go through your carbon accounting process and come up with the greenhouse gas inventory because that would look at the different types of emissions. So there's scope one, scope two, scope three, and really understand you know, which, what aspects of scope one, scope two, scope three emissions are significant. Scope one are the direct emissions coming out of 
your facilities and fleets, as probably a lot of green biz listeners know, scope two would be electricity. And then scope three is kind of this smorgasbord of emissions alter your value chain from what you're purchasing to transport processes to facilities. And then looking kind of on the downstream in terms of the distribution and different ancillary things that, that fill into that like business travel. So depending on your operations, there could be great differences in terms of which our largest contributors to your footprint. And that's really where you should be looking to tackle emissions. We're fortunate, I think in this, in 2021, that we have things like the cost of solar has come down dramatically. There are a lot of different ways to procure renewables through the grid. So addressing electricity emissions is sort of a a big, a big piece in an area where a lot of companies are finding wins. But I think to your question, you know, it really depends on, you know, what, which of those components are the largest contributors to your footprint? Well, for most companies, in fact, the vast majority of companies, uh, uh, scope three is supply chains and, and downstream uh, impacts are overwhelmingly the biggest part of their footprints. And yet that's exceedingly difficult to, to, to tap into because you're talking about hundreds, thousands, maybe tens of thousands of suppliers, uh, and uh, you can't always rely on them to, uh, to give you the honest, up-to-date information. How are you seeing companies move through that? There is a lot of talk and efforts around supply chain and value chain collaboration with customers talking to their suppliers about their goals and really asking suppliers how to help them. And this isn't new. I think you know Walmart's been doing this around sustainability goals for 15 years now. So value chain collaboration is going to be critical to look at different ways to transport, different types of packaging. For example, recycled content packaging actually is usually a, a significant contributor to a lot of uh, CPG companies. And that type of collaboration is just going to need to kind of continue, even though, as you say, scope three is outside of companies' boundaries. So there's a sense of less control, but um, there are ways to kind of work with those in your value chain to influence them in the right direction. Yeah. I want to talk about the books, both title and subtitle. But first of all, what is a climate positive business? I mean, you know, you and I, those of us who have been in this field for, for decades can probably guess, but, but how do you uh, explain to, to our audience, for starters, what that means to be a climate positive business? The focus of climate positive business as a book is to advance business climate strategy. As I'm defining that, that's tackling the multi-headed hydra that is reducing greenhouse gas levels in the air. You could also look at climate risk and disruption to the supply chain, but I'm really focused on kind of the greenhouse gas levels in terms of climate positive business. There's two components to that. There's the process of measuring emissions, so you know what you're reducing in the first place. And then there's actions you take to reduce those emissions. So you and I were just kind of talking about both of those components in part. The measuring emissions is already an established process through the greenhouse gas protocol, as so many know. But within that, there's multiple approaches you can take to measure the more nebulous scope three emissions. And that's, um, at least as as the book's um, focused on it, part of the the value of the book is that it's calling out those different portions of scope three that are not as well documented by the protocols and writing more to build on those made a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah. And the subtitle is, is how you and your company hit bold climate goals and go net zero. So who's, who do you look to uh, company-wise as showing the way on how to do that? I think one good example is Microsoft that set pretty bold goals almost two years ago around offsetting all their historic emissions, as well as setting out a, a $1 billion climate fund. 
and themselves going for uh, carbon neutral, I believe is the term they used. And we could go on and talk about terms for a while because there's net zero, there's carbon neutral, there's climate positive, there's net negative. These All these different terms, because there's um, some of them aren't as well defined as others, you can say, well, net zero is quite, it's virtually consistent to climate to climate neutral or carbon neutral. And then other terms can I go beyond that when they're talking about sort of net negative, climate positive, et cetera. Well, we'll hope we'll see a lot more good examples coming up in the coming weeks and months. The book out this week is Climate Positive Business, How You and Your Company Hit Bold Climate Goals and Go Net Zero. The author is David Jaber. Thanks so much, David. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll learn more about the organization's stories and other things we've mentioned this week. And while you're over there, check out our free weekly newsletter. It's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. And don't forget, we've got our Verge 21 conference coming up. Uh, the registration is uh, going on. It's going to be great. Heather and I have lots of things that we'll be doing at that event. Um, I'm going to tease out that uh, at one of my two keynote conversations ends with a pretty fun little, um, well, uh, I'm going to be in a music video. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. And so anyway, check that out. But um, uh, look forward to seeing you at Verge 21. And we welcome your comments, questions, and tips. You can hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. Mm-hmm.